Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today for our first episode of SaaS Stories. I'm here today with one of our Village Global Network leaders, Brian Kimmel, angel investor, uh, previously go-to-market growth at Zendesk, and special guest, Josh Stein, uh, managing partner at DFJ. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. The illustrious Venture Stories podcast. So let's get into it. Why don't we start with brief introductions and broadly where you guys are most excited right now, you know, investing in, in SaaS in terms of what trends or, or where you're, you're most excited right now? Brian Kimmel, um, I was most recently at Zendesk. I worked on the self-serve side of the business, so more of the bottoms-up transactional part of the business and, and also enterprise growth. And I think for me, I've been spending a lot of time looking at bottoms-up SaaS, so really understanding what does it take to sell to the end user. And that's where you'll definitely see more of like a product-led growth strategy, so spending a lot of time understanding self-serve, um, transactional business models, and how that applies to the enterprise. And just unpack that a little bit for those that may not know. Previously, it was more top-down or like explain that transformation. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, you know, if you look at business models like Zendesk, if you look at Dropbox, you know, these are models where essentially they almost look like consumer business models, where essentially like the acquisition channels, you're essentially competing with almost consumer brands. Like you're doing a lot of paid marketing. This is where you spend a lot in terms of SEM, SEO. There's like a whole landing page strategy. So I think what's interesting is we're seeing this sort of consumerization of SaaS, which I kind of hate the term, but it is very true where oftentimes like there's a need to have a differentiated brand. There's a need to have consumer awareness. So we're kind of seeing a lot of these new trends that historically were only in consumer. They're out now making their way into enterprise. Cool. And that that is a whole rich area we should dig yeah, into about kind of the, the change. It's really about a change in the buyer which I think you, you see reflected in the product and also in the acquisition, the distribution. So I'm Josh Stein. So I'm one of the partners at DFJ. I started out on the operating side. So I cut my teeth as a product manager at a software company in the mid nineties and was a VP of sales. I started a company in 99 uh, where DFJ actually led my series A. So I've been working with the uh, team there for almost 20 years, joined as a partner in 2004 and I've led a lot of our SaaS investments. So I was the first investor in Box um, when it was three people. I was first investor in Sugar CRM when it was three people. I've led investments for us in companies like LaunchDarkly and Twilio, uh, TalkDesk, Periscope Data. I'm kind of a SaaS nerd. I just love the software business and subscriptions make a ton of sense to me. High gross margin and recurring revenues. You know, I'm not a genius, but that that pencils. Totally. So let's get into what we were, let's unpack what we were talking right before the, the change in the buyer. Like let's riff off that. Yeah, sounds great. I have a question for Josh actually. So I think what's interesting is when you look at a company like Box, um, Box had a very different go to market than say a competitor like Dropbox. Um, and I know Josh has been really instrumental in how do you think about should we have a more bottoms up consumerized version or should we really invest in like enterprise level features that allow us to go straight for large companies? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. So if you go back like 20 or 30 years for traditional software, um, you know, it was a long sales cycle. It was a six or seven figure license deal you were selling to a CIO or a VP level. And then there was this 
change that really came as a result of the products being delivered over the web through SaaS or through the iPhone, through like a mobile app uh, kind of store where much lower level people could find a technology they liked and bring it into the workplace themselves. And so it almost kind of short circuited the traditional IT buying cycle, which was very threatening to IT and to CIOs originally, although it's, you know, they've kind of um, gotten uh, behind it. With Box, the thing that actually was the huge inflection point for us was actually the launch of the iPad, because all of a sudden you had people coming into it, it kind of it sparked the imagination of, of really everybody. So you had people coming into the workplace saying, how can I use this awesome device in my job? And it was really hard to actually get content onto the iPad because you can't like, it doesn't have a traditional file system. You can't just plug it in like it's a, you know, a USB drive or something. And so Aaron just absolutely nailed that when the iPod was was announced. And then when it was launched, we were ready to go with an app. And it very quickly became this way that you could get professional content onto the iPad. And the trajectory of the business just absolutely exploded from there. But it wasn't CIOs coming to us and saying, hey, I want to buy this from my organization. It was you know, group leaders or individual contributors that were pulling it in. And then much like you, you were mentioning with Dropbox, it's an inherently viral application because you're collaborating with other people. So you would see this spread within organizations. Interestingly, that was responsible for much of Box. And I would argue Dropbox is probably like the most extreme example of getting to scale with that kind of a model. But it's not what gets you typically to like a billion in revenue. And so Box today, the way they go to market is totally different than that. And so it sort of got them to the, uh, the table, but it's not what got them to where they are now. I think that's a really interesting point. I think specifically for founders who are based in the Bay Area, you can hit a certain level of traction by just selling to other startups. And I think what's great there is that you can kind of get early user feedback. And there's some really great points when you're selling to like a very technical audience or people who have a very good understanding of what you're trying to achieve. I think one of the risks that you potentially run though is like if you wait too long to start selling outside of the Bay Area, then it's like you actually haven't talked to any CIOs. You don't necessarily know what's required for enterprise. Josh, and do you have it's any totally different, right? It's totally different. And I think what's really interesting about, um, you know, in spending more time with startups, this usually is around like pre-series A, you want to at least have a few enterprise customers and like prove that you have traction outside of the Bay Area. But that sales cycle is actually significantly longer. There are usually some feature requests that come with it. So it actually starts to change how you're building and developing your product over time, which I'd love to hear like how you think about that when you're evaluating companies, like especially at the series A level. For sure. I mean, and, and I would say, you know, a lot of founders, most, most of the founders we interact with are product oriented people, I'd say, as opposed to go to market people. That's the more typical profile. And many of them, as you alluded to earlier, are quite young and they maybe haven't even, you know, worked in a large organization, let alone sold to a large organization. You know, Aaron uh, famously was 20 when we backed him at Box. Um, that's not an atypical. You're mentioning uh, the founder of Mixpanel. Yeah, Suhail as well. Yeah, there's a lot of 20-year-old enterprise CEOs, which is interesting because that's younger than a traditional even SDR. Like you wouldn't send right. an AE into these sort of conversations. And yet the CEO is like significantly younger than everyone in the room. And so there's like this, you know, shift in the mentality of the, you know, I think a lot of the companies start with some user-driven, product-driven insight about, hey, there there should be a better way to accomplish this task or this thing I'm trying to solve for. But then it's almost like a filter for companies, whether they can scale to that next level is, can they transition to dealing with what the enterprise needs? So for example, enterprises care a lot about security. 
um, enterprises care a lot about manageability. So being able to, you know, if you're selling to a general electric uh, or a Ford motor company, they might have a thousand employees leaving and departing every day. And how you think about managing those permissions, if they have to manually do that within your application, that's a complete non-starter. They're going to have, you know, Active Directory or Okta or whatever it is that they're integrating with. Um, and you have to fit into that kind of a scheme. I think the unsung heroes in a lot of these companies are the people who partner um, with the product founders to help take them to that next level. So at Box, that was Jim Herbold, uh, to a large degree, who, who joined Box when we were about a million or two million in revenue and took us to 200 million, which is like almost unprecedented from a VP of sales tenure. I'm less involved. You know, I, I wasn't directly involved with Dropbox, but my sense is that that Dennis Woodside had a big role there in helping Dropbox make that evolution. But that's something that we see very consistently is the founders that make it are the ones who can bring in that talent and listen to that talent to sort of bolster, you know, the the gaps in their own knowledge. I'm really curious. I know one of the things you did at Zendesk was working on the logo and mm-hmm. and getting that because you know the logo was awesome, right? The Buddha was like kind of cool and cute, but that's not like an enterprisey. Logo, I would imagine. Was that part, was that related at all? Yeah, absolutely. So Zendesk IPO'd with Buddha wearing a headset as the logo, which very controversial. I think even, you know, that was a few years ago. I think even today that would be even more controversial. And a huge part of that is we were actually starting to think about expanding into new markets. So one of our competitors and more recent competitors is Freshdesk. Um, and when you're opening in offices like Southeast Asia and India, like going into these new markets where you have a Buddha wearing a headset is not the most responsible thing to do. So part of that journey at Zendesk is, you know, I joined and, you know, within basically three months of me joining, we sent the Buddha on a very long vacation. So we didn't want to say we're killing the Buddha, but we sent him on a long vacation. Um, We basically kind of operationalized certain parts of the business where like once you start selling to the enterprise, you know, they're looking for more of a suite of products. So we went from one product to seven products that included live chat. It included more robust analytics. Like there were a lot of things baked into that suite where the whole goal was if we want to move up market and start to have more enterprise customers, we start need to start looking almost like a Salesforce or like a broader platform where we can meet a lot of those needs that they had. You know, one thing I spent a lot of time with our founders talking about is the thing that gets you from zero to one, or let's say even 1 million of ARR to 10 million of ARR is rarely just 10 times what gets, you know, doing that 10x is not what gets you from 10 to 100. It's usually a whole different set of tricks, both in the product, but also in the go-to-market. And, you know, I think that's a counterintuitive thing for founders, particularly when they're having a lot of success. I have never seen more companies in my 15 or 20 years in the business that are, you know, hitting a million of ARR and growing 20% month over month or hitting even like 5 million of ARR and growing at, you know, 10 plus percent month over month. There's a lot of them out there. But I also see a lot of them where I can see the wall that they're heading towards. You know, it might be a, their acquisition channel is just, there's, you know, some limit to the number of people that are searching on Google for the terms that you're looking for, or there's some limit of, uh, of people that you're going to be able to hit with the, the certain type of calling that you're doing. So at some point, you've got to figure out what's that next go to market ocean that, that I can add. And the degree of awareness about that is radically different. And so I think. One of the things that we can do as, you know, investors and sort of advisors to these founders is I try to actually just introduce them to lots of people who have gone through that journey because it's one thing hearing it from me or hearing about it on a podcast. But when you sit down with other successful entrepreneurs and they say, yeah, actually, you know, if we hadn't done outbound, you know, we wouldn't have gotten there. And from a market perspective, when do you look at a company and say, Hey, I see this wall they're, they're approaching and we can help them fix it or see this wall and they're approaching and 
we, we can't help them fix it. And, and besides sort of a founder's ability to take your advice and, and implement it for just from a market perspective, how do you make that decision as to whether to go with it or not to? Well, I think the, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking internally at DFJ. I think one of the biggest risks right now as an investor is not that companies fail per se and that they, they, you know, can't even get to break even. It's that I think a lot of companies, unless they make pretty pivotal moves are going to get stuck at 10 or 20 or 50 million of revenues. And part of the challenge for, I think, both founders and investors alike is that 10 or 15 years ago, there was a market for those companies where you could get acquired or you could even go public at 50 million in revenue. The bar to go public is much higher today. Acquisitions at that level really aren't happening that much. I mean, and when they are, they tend to be more product-led acquisitions where it's more about acquiring a team and a technology, not necessarily the revenue. The problem is that the larger software companies are so big that to move the needle for them, even a 50 or $100 million revenue barely does it. You know, if you talk to Salesforce or Workday or some of the larger companies, they're looking for businesses that can be a billion in revenue in call it three or four years. I mean, that's sort of the metric that they're looking for. And that's a really hard metric. So if you're selling, uh, you know, for example, a solution to a vertical market like restaurants, right? Or insurance agents. You have to be very careful that you have a big enough TAM that you can expand to beyond that. One of the things that I really resonated with, with, uh, with Box or with Sugar CRM, or I would say Yammer or TalkDesk is that they are very broad solutions. So, you know, uh, I'll take TalkDesk as an example. We sell a cloud-based call center solution. So it's built on Twilio, which is kind of fun because it's another company we're involved with. But, you know, lots of companies have call centers across all kinds of industries. And so you're not just limited. Now, if, if TalkDesk was more specific to only uh, doing call centers, let's say for the travel industry, I think that would be much tougher to, to scale, right? And so I think you have to make sure that you're going after a broad enough opportunity, even if it's not what you're doing initially, that you have that kind of vision for where you're going to possibly be able to go. What's interesting with TalkDesk too, I know you have a two-person board. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Tiago, I know quite well. That's with, atypical, but yeah. <laughs> that is very atypical. It's a very atypical company. So TalkDesk actually started as a Twilio hackathon project. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, I would say their go-to-market is primarily enterprise. Today, yes. Today. Did they start out with more of a bottoms-up, like self-serve business? 100%. So I- interestingly, uh, as an analog to what you did with the Zendesk brand, TalkDesk's original tagline was a call center in five minutes which is awesome. And in fact, they can give you a call center up and running and, and you know, maybe it's not five minutes, but it's really close to that. But that's not an enterprise pitch at all. In fact, um, I would argue that that's like a, you know, a potentially a liability from, and so, you know, uh, Tiago, I think really got ahead of that and rebranded the company, you know, to compete much more against the legacy incumbents. And he has a fabulous story to go do that. So the business of TalkDesk today versus where it started out is absolutely totally different. But I think a lot of the same characteristics carry through. So for example, I think both with Box and TalkDesk, one thing that you see is uh, the legacy com- competitors, like for Box, it would be like, say, a Documentum. Those products were fundamentally engineered to make the buyer happy, the buyer being the CFO or the CIO, effectively uh, management. Box and TalkDesk were engineered to make the users happy, much more the way that we think of modern web design, like so people don't hate their jobs. Um, because they're using a product that actually is like intuitive and easy to learn. And so I think as Box and TalkDesk have scaled up to the enterprise, they figured out how do we speak the language of the, you know, kind of C-suite buyers, but they haven't lost that 
how do we make a product that users actually love using? And so I think that that's like a really, you know, kind of that's sort of their secret weapon in competing against the incumbents because it's, it's hard when you're going to the enterprise, especially, you know, when you're making that transition initially, one of the things you have to remember about big companies is they're really risk averse because you don't, if you're working for a fortune 500 company, you might get a little bit of a pat on the back for bringing in a new technology. But if you bring in a technology that creates a security breach or takes down the operations, you're fired, right? So there's this hugely asymmetric risk reward. And so you've got to really make it easy for people to say, I want to take this leap. It's got to be either a lot easier to use, uh, offer them new capability that they couldn't otherwise have a lot cheaper or some combination of all three. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, uh, Josh, how your job is different than it was maybe a few years ago in terms of maybe the different types of companies you're, you're seeing, looking for, investing in, maybe how the stage has evolved. Just how has your job changed? I think it's a really wonderful time to be an entrepreneur, truly. I mean, I, so when I started my company back in 99, you know, just getting live with a customer cost us five, six, seven million dollars. I mean, we spent two or three million bucks on infrastructure. We were buying Sun servers and Cisco routers and Oracle databases and all that stuff. And, you know, now you have AWS, you have Twilio, the friction is so low. And on the go to market side, um, you know, the reason we're seeing so many companies getting to a million of ARR, often on like a million of capital invested or less, is because the infrastructure is cheap and the distribution has gotten so cheap. Uh, one of my really old friends is, is Naval Ravikant. We used to kick around startup ideas. And 15, 20 years ago, he was, you know, he would run ad campaigns for non-existent products just to see what the response rate was, uh, like with, with Google AdWords, which I, you know, a lot of people do that now, but I just think it's, you know, it's so brilliant to be able to do that. When I, when we were, when I was starting my company in 99, you know, you really had to kind of build the product based on like customer interviews and sort of hope that they would, that you kind of got it right and they would buy it. And if you didn't, the iteration cycle was much longer. So just the, you know, the, the frictions for entrepreneurs are so much lower. Now, the, the flip side of that is there's also a lot more competition, right? And it's, I, I think, uh, there's also probably more things competing for buyers' attention than ever before. So just breaking through the noise is very, very hard. I spend a lot of time talking to founders about, you know, how do you position yourself so you can have that kind of breakout effect? So like there was a, there was a moment probably what three years ago when Slack, I would argue, kind of hit that point where you could sort of tell people like, Oh, I've heard about that Slack thing. I think I want to try it, right? Like they were, they were actively wanting to try it um, because they, they sort of had heard about it. And that kind of pull is so rare, but when it happens is when you see companies just dramatically accelerate. And so you know, we spend a lot of time working with companies like, how are you going to like break through that, that kind of noise? Cause there's just, there's so many things competing for, for the attention of the buyer. It's interesting too. Cause I feel like in the Bay area, we hear a lot about Slack, but if you leave the Bay area, you hear a lot about Microsoft teams. And oh, I think yeah. when you go into the enterprise, like the Microsoft lock-in is a real thing. You might not have it here. Cause I think a lot, oftentimes, like especially startups, mid-market companies, we're able to kind of choose our own tools and that's fine. But once you go to the fortune 500, fortune 100s of the world, like there still is such a thing as having like true relationship with Microsoft. You can only use Microsoft related products. And that's something that's been really hard for the Slack enterprise team. Do you have thoughts on like lock-in and like, is that something that you encourage your companies to start to kind of build and like aim towards? I, well, first of all, I couldn't agree with you more about the Valley kind of echo chamber versus the broader world. And I think, um, you know, Microsoft is a company that is not as much part of the conversation here in the Valley often, but from a corporate you know, enterprise global 2000 standpoint is incredibly dominant. The Microsoft Salesforce and the 
teams that they have covering those accounts is a formidable opponent. And um, I would also, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that Microsoft shockingly is not playing fair and is bundling their products in a way that uh, I would imagine might get them in trouble in, in the next five or six years where a product like Teams is effectively free as part of you know Office 365 you know, free and from a vendor that they know they can trust and with salespeople who have been working with them for 10 or 15 years, that's a tough thing to compete against. You know, going back to like the, you know, the, you really need to make it the, the, you need to give them a compelling reason to take that risk on you. Because if I was an IT buyer, that is the safe choice is to go with Microsoft Teams, even if it's not, you know, what my users maybe would, would prefer. But also, you know, here the users are, you know, reading TechCrunch and they're, more aware of the latest technologies. I mean, your typical uh, Fortune 500 employee is perfectly fine using Microsoft Teams. So, so what's going to determine, just to use that example, whether or not Slack can like rise above? Like, how do you expect or predict that you know co- uh, competition to play out? I, I think it's going to be a couple things. I mean, I think the first is they're going to have to develop their own you know go to market tactics that compete with that. So, for example. Last fiscal year, Box did about 500 million in revenue. So we're getting to sort of real scale now. You know, Box, I think, has a much more forward leaning story uh, than Microsoft on things like AI, for example, and machine learning. So we have a uh, uh, an offering called Box Skills, which is a framework where you can plug in machine learning models. And if all of your content is in Box, as new machine learning models become available, it's like your data is future proof, if you will, because you have that easy framework. That's the kind of thing that gives a lever for a buyer to say, okay, I'm going to make that bet on box because they're more forward leaning in the vision, right? I mean, the, 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 while the bundling can be very powerful, the knock on it is, I think you also are seeing some products that they're not investing in, in as much. So I think the, the secret for a Slack in a box is actually going to be a combination of developing your own go to market tactics and strategies that maybe get you on a par with those companies. And then product is really where they're going to, they're going to win and out execute. And I think I would love to see more of those companies coming together like uh, Slack and, and Microsoft and Zendesk to battle some of those incumbents. Because I do think also, you know, all three of those companies would be thought of as big companies in the Valley and very small companies, I think in the broader landscape. Yeah. I was going to say, it's an interesting point when you talk about more of like the, the partnership component to SaaS. And I think that's something that um, startups feel this, especially like once you start to move up market or you start to go after large enterprise buyers, like you have to understand their existing workflows. And typically with that comes a lot of building that you need to do internally. So for example, I worked on the Zendesk apps marketplace for a while. And one of the things with that is anytime you get a feature request or anytime you have an enterprise customer, they're coming with all of these tools that they're using already. And they basically want to pass their data from one solution to another. And they want to have a more holistic view of their customer. So one of the things you have to think about is how do we prioritize all of these feature requests? How do we prioritize partner integrations? But I think what's really interesting, like specifically with something like Microsoft Teams, um, I actually worked on the launch for Slack and Microsoft Teams. A lot of these partner integrations we brought in-house because it ends up being a core value prop for the business. So if you want to go to an enterprise customer, they expect you to have a Salesforce integration. They expect you to ex- to connect with all of these um, tools that they're using already. And I think the Slack and Teams example is really good where if you think of a product like Zendesk, it's very much focused on a very 
core buyer, which is a customer support buyer, you're not going to necessarily get a marketing person, an IT person to log in and look at Zendesk all the time. But what you can do is you can pass any tickets that make sense for them, pass it to them using Slack or using a communications tool that they're using on a daily basis. And that becomes a lot, it becomes a, a more broad internal conversation when you can say like, here's like a little piece of our product, but we don't expect you to log in on a daily basis. I, I, I totally agree with all that. I, I think I'd also maybe building on that a little bit. I think uh, one of the strengths of, of founders and entrepreneurs is they sometimes have like a, just a, a different metaphor for what something should be. And like a, you know, um, like uh, for example, CRM, you know, it's traditionally accounts, opportunities, et cetera. It's a kind of classic sort of data structure that then drives the product. And I think you're seeing more innovative companies like Affinity, for example, coming up with with sort of taking that metaphor and turning it a little upside down on its head and making it a more organic and sort of flexible kind of concept. In um, communications, I would argue Slack did that in terms of thinking about how we reinvent that. Um, one of my more recent investments is in a company called Front, which was started by Mathilde Collin and, and um, her co-founder Laurent. And I think they had a different vision for what should the customer interaction experience be. So um, less being based on like a ticketing system as a metaphor and more based on how do you think about a holistic conversation with this customer that's both multi-channel, but also a single pane of glass in terms of my interaction with you as a customer, um, as opposed to just like, this is your ticket. I'm going to resolve this ticket. You know, I'm trying to think of it as sort of as a queue. It's more of like a, how does a group of people at a vendor come together to service a customer. And I think like that's, it's not just a, you know, a, uh, a more mobile ver- uh, first version or an easier to use. It's actually a different metaphor for the interaction. Th- those are, I think, where it's really exciting because it creates white space, if you will, right? You're still competing at some level with an existing solution, but you, you really have a differentiated advantage there because it's just a different thing. Totally. And, and Matilda is obviously an awesome and inspiring founder and, and person. Um, I don't know, no, 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 so I can't say, it, but the, uh, I'm curious, did they have sort of like a, when they were starting this company, like a Babe Ruth moment where they were like, five years from now, the world is going to look like this. And some people saw it, some people didn't. Or was it more evolutionary or what's, what's your perspective on that? That is a great question. I, I, uh, when I invested, they were already really off to the races. I mean, they're, she has done a remarkable job at building that company in an extremely capital efficient way as well. So I co-led their series B. Which is uh, very competitive because right, right now it seems obvious. <laughs> I feel like everyone's trying to get into that, into that round. And I guess I just wonder at seed, why didn't people see it? Yeah. You know, in the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an audacious thing that they were trying to do. Right. And I think. When you, when you have that, that new metaphor, it's interesting. A lot of people will disagree with it early on or there's less validation. Um, you know, I give the people who, um, backed her at a seed level huge props for that. Um, uh, Mamoon Hamid, who led the series A, I think is someone who's now, uh, Mamoon and I, um, worked together on, on box very closely. I did the, the A, which you now call a seed. He did the next round. You know, he did both slack and front. I mean, I'd say that's a remarkable track record of spotting these sort of new metaphors and remarkable founders early. But I, I don't know the, the details as much with her. And that I can tell you that, you know, one of the things that we look for in maybe a little more growth sort of investment where we're kind of looking for the momentum is sort of, you know, the, you know, the kind of the, the dogs eating the dog food. And with, with the case of Front, it was just absolutely clear that they were. How do you think about Front, obviously, uh, originally a French company moved here. How do you think about building and investing companies outside of Silicon Valley? Just how people approach it, how should they should approach it? What are your thoughts there? It's become very fashionable to sort of say Silicon Valley is not the place anymore. And I, you know, I'm 
I have my Silicon Valley tattoo, I guess. Uh, maybe it's because I, I grew up here, but I, I still think it's the best place to build companies. I mean, we're all familiar with the challenges. You know, talent is very expensive. Uh, people move around a lot, et cetera. But I also think there's more of the ingredients here that than anywhere else. And the um, I'm constantly amazed at the amount of creativity that, that comes out of this place. So um, with that said, I think having a the ability to operate in multiple regions, which traditionally was very hard, but has gotten better with some of the thanks to some of these tools like like Slack and Front and then and Box is is critical. So in the case of Matilde, you know, she's French and so she has a, a French team. You know, Tiago at TalkDesk is Portuguese. We have half the company in Portugal. I think there's so this magical thing where if the founder is is uh, themselves from a different community and has those ties and really understands the culture, it can work very well. Even if you don't, I would say once you get to the scale of maybe 150 or 200 FTEs, I would strongly encourage any of our founders to be looking at secondary locations, You know, especially for things like sales, outbound sales, customer service. Development's a little harder to pull off, but at some scale, people do it. I don't, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. Like I think to your point, like I I'm in a number of French companies and Israeli companies as well, and I think that there are really nice SaaS specific ecosystems outside of the Bay Area. I think it's interesting because I think when you look at enterprise software as a category, there's been a number of really great companies that have been built elsewhere. Like Atlassian is a great example of that, where now there's some really strong technical talent um, in Australia and in certain parts of APAC. Um, and they're all Atlassian alumni. So I'm, you know, very bullish on that re- on that region specifically um, when it comes to SaaS. You know, specifically, there's a lot happening in Paris right now. Like there's Station F, which is a, a huge incubator and accelerator. I've seen a lot of really interesting companies come out of Partech and eFounders. Um, Matilde actually was part of the eFounders community community. So I think those are some spaces that I watch very closely. I think I think to Josh's point though, what's really interesting is I think, you know, there when it comes to like pure business software, I think it's possible to build it elsewhere. I think where a lot of companies potentially come up against some challenges is once you want like a true VP of sales or when you're starting to scale certain organizations where it's just a lot easier to potentially find seasoned um, professionals in the Bay Area. And I think it depends on how technical your product is as well. Like I think if, you know, AI is going to be a core function of your business, then by default, you'll, you'll find some really great AI engineers in, you know, Silicon Valley, or if there's a hardware component, like I think one of the interesting things that I'm seeing a lot specifically with the like large frontier tech enterprise companies where it's like autonomous vehicles or drones or some of the like next gen enterprise. Those are companies where you need to raise a lot of capital up front. And if you need to raise a lot of capital up front, like this is the best place to do it. Oh, by far. Right. I mean, the amount of capital here, I think dwarfs any of the other markets. It's like a, you know, it's a power law uh, kind of a thing. I, I think the other thing that is a benefit of having a presence for companies a little bit sooner outside of here is you alluded to this earlier. It can be an echo chamber here. We, we, one of the things we screen for is, you know, some of the companies that are seeing a lot of growth are primarily selling to other startups in the Bay Area, which I would argue is ultimately probably an atypical customer and one that could also be very um, market dependent in a, you know, if we have some sort of a downturn. And so, you know, I think. Making sure that your product also plays in sort of other regions is a very good thing. And I would encourage, uh, I think not many founders uh, are so busy, they don't take the time to travel enough to, you know, other parts of the country and really understand uh, what the cust- their customers are thinking. I'll give you an example of someone who I think just crushes it on this. Edith Harbaugh at LaunchDarkly is an amazing CEO that I've uh, been lucky enough to back. You know, she is on a plane constantly flying, talking to customers, giving the pitch. 
in different regions. And I think it's made her much more, you know, facile and intuitive about the needs of, of customers across a broader segment, not just the needs of other startups, if you, you know, if that makes sense. And she's, you know, she's selling uh, software that effectively makes companies more agile in how they develop and deploy software. So that's sort of a natural thing to sell to other companies here. But I think to be, you know, going back to the point of to be a really big company, billion dollar revenue company, you can't just sell to software companies and startups in Silicon Valley. You know, this is sort of a criticism of some of the companies that come out of incubators is that some of that early traction is like, it's very heavily concentrated within their own, you know, kind of network or incubator. And so making sure that there's nothing wrong with that per se, it's still just, it's still traction, but making sure that, you know, the message plays more broadly, uh, if you will. And because how do you think about, how do you sort of break up the world? If you like put, you know, SaaS obviously big enterprise software, big topic. If you think about, you know, explaining to your partners or other folks, like the sub domains and with, within you can, you can pick companies. Like how do you break up the world a little bit? If you were like to market map, like where companies fit in that you take a look at. So, you know, we do the kind of the, the typical sort of market mapping between obviously there's like, you know, application, you know, high, high level buckets, like, you know, there's applications, there's infrastructure. Um, those are relatively different within applications. You have different sectors, some of which we think of as being much more, let's say heavily mined at this point. So I'll pick on one, um, MarTech, I think, you know, marketing tech is one that's, there's just so many companies going after such narrower slices. I'm sure you can build a company there, but it's, it's just harder. I think, you know, I think one of the things that impressed me the most when we saw Tiago was that he had found, I think, effectively one of like the last major horizontal white spaces where there just hadn't been a lot of innovation, even though that's a very large category of application software. I think, you know, on the infrastructure side, you know, the we try to listen to people who, frankly, know more about it than we do. So, you know, giving a plug for, for someone who I really respect, Jesse Robbins, who is the founder of Chef is, you know, just an incredibly well thought of person in the DevOps space. And so, you know, Jesse will sometimes pull me aside and say, hey, you know, you really need to be paying attention to what's going on here. And I've just learned to listen to him. So like LaunchDarkly, for example, hit my radar when Jesse was like this, you really, first of all, Edith's amazing, but also feature flagging is like kind of be a thing. So we were a little more reactive in that sense that we're looking for the founders to kind of educate us on it. But you know, I think the the problem with market mapping too specifically too is like uh, I, I was talking to some of our um, up and coming investors. You know, there's going to be like six competitors, especially if you're being superficial about it for every idea that you see. And so, if you're, I think especially as an early stage VC, it's actually a mistake to focus too much on competition too early. Like I tend to focus much more on do I think this is a space that has kind of legs, and do I really like the person. The, you know, and I, I tend to focus very heavily on the the founder or the two, you know, two or three founders that are involved. And I think if you have those, you know, you can, you know, that's really enough at the early stage to take a bet. You know, when, when I did Box back in 2006, you know, that was coming off the heels of XDrive and iDrive and all these things that had sort of failed. And, you know, I think it would be a mistake to say, oh, well, that's been tried and it, and it failed, or there's a dominant competitor that we can't go after. I think at the growth stage, that's much more relevant. You know, and I think that there is a premium even more now than 10 years ago for being number one in a space. And so I think as a, you know, as a growth investor, you have to be much more aware of that. I'm curious, you know, you go even earlier than we do. Like, do do you, how much do you spend time on kind of like thinking about the competition versus, you know, looking at the individual? Yeah, I think like to start, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, 20 year old founders who haven't worked in the enterprise. Like, I think these are the types of founders where Eric and I are seeing at the early stage. 
And oftentimes, like the way that they are thinking about their product, they're actually not putting themselves in a very specific category or bucket. So I think like if you look at front as an example, like maybe if you had been an investor around the block for a while, you would put it as a subcategory under a Zendesk or a traditional customer support software. But if you talk to a founder like Matilde, like her vision is going to be very different. And actually the, the features and the way that she's thinking about the product is, is actually going to be much different than say these existing like tools that people are using already. So I think oftentimes it is really understanding like what is that founder's vision? And I, I probably spend a lot of time on customer development and really understanding like who is the buyer and like what what are they current what's their current solution what is like then that next iteration or that next phase of growth for them as a as an end user because i think what's interesting about enterprises it's a little bit different from consumer because essentially you likely already have these existing workflows that you're using on a daily basis so i think to disrupt those workflows or to actually get you to try something new like they're either there's either going to be a slight iteration in something that's either cheaper easier to use like there's a few data points that you can really filter for or it's going to be something completely disruptive that you didn't really know that you needed. So it's really spending time with the founder and kind of understanding what's their vision and like how well do they know that buyer. And, and to that end, most of my enterprise uh, companies I've invested in have also had young founders scale, you know, like 20 years old, voice hops, 25, Lattice, I think it was like 26, 27 when, when Jack started it. What we haven't talked about is sort of vertical application, like, like pharma or healthcare, or real estate or, or fintech. Have you guys made those types of investments or how do you? View, view those? I haven't made those direct investments in terms of verticalized software. But one thing that I do spend time understanding is with a lot of these sort of horizontal software plays, who are going to be their hero use cases? So I'll use Airtable as an example, because um, I've known the Airtable team for a while. And I, and I think one of the interesting things about them is that when you come out with a tool that's basically like, we can do anything for anyone. It's actually a really difficult go to market. So I think what's been really great to watch as far as like understanding how they think about their go to market is they've actually developed a series of use cases, which are really compelling and actually help the product grow um, virally. So like recently, you know, they've really found a nice sweet spot in org charts. And if you think about org charts, you're like, well, you know, is that really like, what does that mean in terms of market size? Is there a need for a product that only builds org charts? And because this is just one category as, as, you know, dozens of other ones that you can do, this use case is actually really interesting because there, it's a unique way of starting top down. Cause if you think about org chart planning, that's starting at very much like a director level and above. And it's also an easy way for you to add new users to the product. So as your org chart grows and as you're making changes, you start adding more people to this air table and it becomes really a, a kind of a, a cool internal use case, which is basically director level and above as far as who you're selling to. But then you can start to really tackle team by team. Who are you adding to this chart? So it's kind of a simple use case for one template, but it's an easy way to articulate. This is a really broad pro- product and how do we get more people using it? I, I think that's a great example because, you know, if it was just an org chart product, I think it would be a much more limited opportunity. But I think you know, it's a, it's obviously a much broader product than that, but you have a use case that still pulls it in. I mean, if you have a broad product and it's not really great at any one use case that gets someone's attention, it's not gonna it's not gonna make that leap. You know, I think a lot of the use cases for Box early on were actually relatively simple, like people wanting to replace an FTP server. But then as they start using the product, they realize, oh, it can do this, and oh, it can do this, and so it gives you that kind of initial hook. And you know, if org charts is the kind of thing that particularly can be, let's say, articulated easily by a rep doing a call or following up on a lead, that makes it, I think, extra valuable. 
One thing that we have spent a lot of time looking for in our companies is also like a accumulating advantage or like a compounding advantage that builds. And I think uh, additional uh, features is one of those. In vertical specifically, we've done some vertical investing, specifically mostly in, in healthcare. I think Viva would be like probably a, a great example. We we did not do Viva. We did um, Athena Health, which is a a similar one, but you know, within those verticals, it, I think it can be easier to have that compounding advantage. So you, um, so for Athena, for example, their their core product was helping doctors get reimbursement from insurance faster, and they had a rules engine, this sort of like pre ML, where you know insurance companies part of their business basically to reject claims and sort of drag their heels, and they would every time they had a claim rejected, they would code a new rule about how to make sure that didn't happen again, and so. You know, when a doctor would join the platform, it would go from like 40% first time acceptance of the claim rate up to like 90 very quickly. And then the DSO, the day's sales outstanding, effectively the receivables for the doctor would go from like 90 days to 30 days over like a three month period. You know, that was a compounding advantage that was more possible because they were in a vertical that would be harder to generalize across, I think, a horizontal category. So one advantage of verticals is that you can have I think you can understand the customer more deeply and, and sort of maybe it might be easier to have market dominance in a vertical, but you really got to make sure the vertical's big enough um, to go after. I think what I have not had any success with as an investor, although I've, I've tried, is backing a company that's in one vertical with the expectation that they will bridge to another vertical later. Um, I think I've seen that happen like never, point never. And I think part of it is when you build a company from the beginning to focus on a vertical, the culture is so ingrained in that. The people you're hiring know that market so well that it's very, very difficult to kind of pot that to a new thing. Um, It's much easier to start with a horizontal product and then have vertical teams. And in fact, most of the broad, uh, you know, like take a Salesforce, for example, CRM is a broad solution. They certainly have account teams that are very skilled in different verticals. Um, but yeah, the other way around never works in my experience. Talk more about this concept of compounding, is it compounding advantage? Yeah. It's like accumulating advantage or compounding advantage. Unpack that a bit more. What do people have misconceptions? They think they have compounding advantage, but don't in fact have it. Just unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think it can come from, from a lot of places. So it can come simply from, uh, you know, simple scale economy. So Twilio, you know, when, when Jeff came and talked to us, first of all, he had such a, a clear vision about where, this sort of builder economy was going and then, and, and kind of how do you enable the makers to make things faster? But the thing that really got us over the hump there was he also had a very articulate case for how he would continue, even, even it's a market where you think it would be commoditized over time. If you're the largest player, you will be the commoditizer. You will be the person pushing the cost curve down and forcing everyone else to play catch up to you. Andy Jassy at AWS has probably done this better than anybody else, where AWS is now generating a huge chunk of Amazon's economic value, profits, cash flow, et cetera. That should be a commodity business. Like on paper, that is a business where you'd think that would be everyone can do it and it goes to zero. And the accumulating advantage of, of something like AWS or Twilio is not just that as the largest purchaser, you have economies of scale in, in the buying process, but also developers become used to using you, right? And so, you know, if I know how to build on AWS, could I go and learn how to do it on GCP or on Azure? Sure. But unless there's some compelling reason, like it's a lot cheaper, right? Or a lot easier, why would I do that? And so, you know, if you're AWS or Twilio, you're walking down that cost curve and you already have the developers kind of locked in there. I, I think that's an incredibly compounding advantage. And that 
like it just keeps getting the advantage gets stronger over time, not weaker or static, if that makes sense. So that's those are the things that we're really looking for. The um, you know, it could be a data advantage, right? And so um, actually, it's interesting when we, when we backed Box, I thought the data advantage would be something more persistent across customers, where we could do analytics across different customers. Actually, I would argue didn't really uh, pan out as much. But the what Brianne was mentioning, kind of like you start with one use case and bridge to the others, that has been very true, right? So the kind of compounding advantage of once your content's already in Box. IT has already blessed Box and said, this is okay. We, you know, this is HIPAA compliant. This is past our, you know, red team audit kind of thing. If you're now building an application, why wouldn't you build it on top of Box rather than go bang your head against your IT and your security team to get permission to do it somewhere else? Right. So those are, those are sort of the things that we look for. But at the early stage, a lot of it's conceptual, right? You just have to. So what I'm looking for is, is there a, you know, can a founder articulate what could be? And are they thinking about that stuff? I think one interesting thing in B2B is how to think about consumer trends and how they apply to B2B. So I think like I recently invested in a video API company called Voxseed and Voxseed is very much a broad usage API. You can embed um, live video into any platform. And what's really interesting is like going back to the healthcare example, I thought of this where in healthcare, we're seeing a, a shift towards telemedicine. So whether you're one medical or whether you're any of these existing healthcare providers, there is a need for the ability to basically talk to your doctor from home. And what that means from a B2B standpoint, if you're developing, say, a video API, then having that HIPAA compliance is really important. And that's going to unlock new opportunities. So I think when we were talking earlier about like the Microsoft Teams example, like if you want to go after the enterprise, there's always these certain set of features where you may need to invest a little bit of time to become HIPAA compliant, but that's going to unlock an entire new vertical for you. So the question is usually for the founder, at what point do you want to do that? And oftentimes that is heavily dependent on like what what does that broader healthcare landscape look like? One question I have for you guys is how you think about white space uh, in general. And there are a couple of ways to, to ask this. So one is if you were starting a company today in the enterprise space and you weren't limited to your skill sets as as uh, strong as they may be, had any skill set you wanted, where where would you say, oh, here's a really good opportunity. I just want to see a really talented entrepreneur take this opportunity. Yeah. Another is when really talented entrepreneurs come to, come to you and say, hey, what should I work on? And where do you tend to, and I know some, some of it is, is reactive. You want them to educate you, but where are some opportunities you notice? Brand, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I've been thinking about a few things. Like I've been really thinking a lot about front end web development. So I'm noticing a shift where there are a number of companies trying to tackle basically how do we empower marketers, product managers, um, e-commerce managers? How do we give them the ability to actually change front end features? Um, cause what's interesting right now is there is a shift towards, you know, companies just want to build faster. And I think one of the concerns is over time, once you have a large complicated engineering org, then, you know, engineers want to work on tough problems. There are certain changes to, um, your website that will typically get deprioritized if they're more marketing in nature or it's a, it's a random request from the sales team. So I have been looking in that space is are there ways for us to make front front-end development a lot easier? Are there ways to templatize certain features that have historically just been something that get deprioritized? Um, and I think that's something that's kind of interesting because I think a lot of times in the Bay Area, we're like, we want to build everything ourselves. But in spending time with engineers, you'll start to figure out that there are certain complicated problems that people want to work on. And there are other things where you're like, uh, I don't really want to touch like SSO, single sign-on, or certain things like that where they're potentially just kind of like kind of low-end features and ones that are not as fun to build. So I, I have kind of like a three-part 
sort of hypothesis for where I think broadly opportunities are going to be over the next five or 10 years. So the first is I think speed is matters more and more in life and in business. So I think, you know, companies want to execute in a more agile fashion. So things that remove friction, whether that's, you know, AWS or Twilio or LaunchDarkly or CircleCI or Chef, like things that allow people who are building products to or, or building things to serve customers to go faster. I think that's going to be a winning strategy. And just, you know, thing, it may seem like we have low friction now. It felt like we had low friction in 99. Like we didn't, we didn't walk around going, oh my God, we're living in the dark ages. And so I think we're going to see things that make it even faster um, over time. I think we're going to live in a world uh, and businesses are going to operate in a world that is increasingly driven by data and by people who understand data at massive scale. And so, you know, we have a lot of bets around this kind of uh, hypothesis that data science is going to be a thing. And I think anything that relates to how uh, companies can store data, process data, ingest it, uh, enable people to, to do it, data is going to be, I'd be spending a lot of time there. And then I think the third step of that is I actually think algorithms working on data is going to be even bigger than people working with data. And, you know, it's, it's almost like trade at this point to be like machine learning and AI is going to be a big thing, but it, it really, really is. I think it may be underhyped, especially outside the valley, not overhyped or maybe misunderstood as being, you know, kind of more like the Skynet kind of, you know, you know, her sort of general uh, AI versus maybe just, you know, uh, algorithms and models that are helping us make better kind of predictive decisions or being more proactive as opposed to reactive um, with data. But I think, you know, it, uh, my I have a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old, and I plan to encourage them to study that <laughs> aspect of computer science. I think that's the way the world's going to run. And I think we're going to see, you know, huge positive changes in the world where we effectively liberate people from really sort of, you know, tasks that have a lot of kind of drudgery to them. And I think, you know, it's going to be a huge net positive for society. So I also find it very meaningful, not just, and then I think it's going to be financially successful, but I actually think it's going to be one of the things that takes us as a, as a world and as a society to the next level is harnessing data and uh, machines effectively to make our lives better. We've put in a number of bets in autonomous driving, which you mentioned earlier, you know, I think that's going to be a huge productivity enhancer and quality of life enhancer for people just getting that, um, that commute time back. I think it's gonna make our cities more livable. I think you're going to avoid, you know, huge numbers of accidents and deaths that happen. So not to get too far out there, but I would, I would say to people, you know, focus on things that let people go faster, focus on things around data and focus on things that have ML and AI attached to them. We're within the stack of, uh, autonomous vehicles you've invested. So we, we went sort of full nutty and went for the full stack, um, approach. We, we, we were one of the early investors in Tesla, um, which obviously is a leader in, in the space. And we've looked at just about everything, but the, the, the big bet that we've made is a company called Zooks, which is, um, full stack, which means, you know, soup to nuts. So they, they're doing everything from the, you know, the, the body of the car all the way up through the software stack. And then even the consumer facing service that runs on top of that, um, rather than partnering with like an Uber or a Lyft, they're actually building that whole service as well. So it's an incredibly audacious undertaking. Um, it probably has the highest concentration of IQ of any of our companies that I've seen. And, and I think they're, um, they're going to do amazing stuff with it. But that, um, you know, in that specific case, in the frontier tech space, which is, I do less personally, but DFJ does a lot of, we've done better backing entrepreneurs that are going for, kind of the full stack change it all approach rather than incremental approaches. Um, we, we've been lucky enough to back um, Elon and his last three companies. And, you know, I, I would say very much with, with Tesla, but really much with SpaceX, 
you know, that was kind of the guiding principle, which is I'm going to reinvent the entire thing, not just, you know, retrofit and rocket, right? I'm going to sort of rethink the entire design and bring Actually, I think he brought a lot of the principles of software engineering in terms of reusability and, and modularity and stuff into it. I think it's really interesting to think about opportunities if you're more of a business-minded founder as well, or if you are like a VP of sales or someone that's really strong in business development. Because I think what's interesting about all these, a lot of these frontier tech spaces is like autonomous vehicles, for example, vertical takeoff and landing, looking at even AI and machine learning. I think historically, these have been very much academic projects and they've come out of um, DARPA. They've been MIT projects. They've always been like very much part of a university. And I think over the past few years, we're starting to see like they're actually real world applications. Like I, I talked to a lot of founders who are working in autonomous trucking or autonomous vehicles, and they're actually looking for more support on the business side of things. Like how do we actually package this up? Like how do we think about applying like consumer research and actually taking this to market? I think a good example of that is a company called Voyage. Um, and Voyage is basically tackling autonomous driving, um, starting with retirement communities. So looking at the villages in Florida, which is basically this, you know, the, the largest um, population of retirees in America. And how do you introduce something like autonomous vehicles to this generation of individuals who are potentially less tech savvy, or in many ways, just kind of opposed to the idea of self-driving cars. And that presents a really unique business challenge where it's like, we need to build a relationship with these community members in parallel. We're also working on like some really technical problems over time. And you kind of have these two worlds that are being married up over time. And that's where a business minded founder or someone who's really strong on the go to market can help like bridge the gap between here are the end users who are maybe afraid to get in an autonomous vehicle. And here is this really hyper technical team who is really comfortable doing the research, but this is sort of their first time taking something crazy and, and futuristic to market. Going back to your, your thoughts on compounding advantage, has there been a time where you invested in a company that you thought had a certain compounding advantage and it turned out that, that it didn't? Or a company perhaps you haven't invested in, but you, th- you thought they might have or other people thought they might have? Like, when is it deceiving? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to think about a good example of one. I mean, it often leads to a pivot in the model. So when I invested in Box, it was fund- it was a targeted at consumers. And so we thought that there would be much more around consumer sharing with each other. So for example, I remember talking with Aaron, this is, you know, it was like a four person company at the time. Hey, it'll be great because if people are uploading like the same song or the same video, we're only going to have to store it once, right? In in our database, that's going to be like space efficient back when you actually cared about like, you know, the cost of storage, you know, that as we pivoted the business to enterprise, that just became sort of relevant. Um, I've seen in other companies, you know, where I've been on the uh, the wrong side of that, where the one of our competitors has found the compounding advantage, and then you know seen how hard it is to compete with that. You know, like I would say, if you've been competing with Salesforce over the last ten or fifteen years, it hasn't been a ton of fun because you know they're they've done a really really good job. You know, one one thing with with Salesforce uh, now is is you know certainly around here, most people who are in sales have used Salesforce and they're comfortable with it. The fact that people already know your UI is a compounding advantage. So, you know, what a pain to have to, you know, in addition to all the stuff I'm trying to do of grow the business, you want me to learn a new system when there's a perfectly good one right there that we could just buy, you know, that's a compounding advantage. So it's sort of the opposite of the white space question. What are the spaces that if, if, you know, a really talented person who is also your friend came to you and said, I'm building a company in, in this, you know, this space or is this type of product, you would be like, don't do that. <laughs> or, or it's going to be really, really hard. So you mentioned, mar- you know, marketing tech earlier, 
what are other spaces and why where you say, you know, it, it can be done, but it's really hard, overdone, crowded? I think, you know, marketing tech, it's like uh, nature abhors a vacuum and it, it, uh, it also abhors profits and ad tech as near as I can tell other than, than Google and Facebook. You know, that's a space that I think is oversaturated. And part of it is there's a lot of people in the Valley that have used those systems and platforms as an end user. And so they feel like it's comfortable. It's sort of, it's doing what you know. I don't think enough people put in the, the time to really think about beyond their own experience set, if that makes sense. Um, one of the things that I don't think Aaron gets enough credit for at Box was, you know, we were a year and a half, two years in, and the business was actually going pretty well on the consumer side. But we started um, having a series of conversations that made it pretty clear that the, the enterprise side is where it was going to be. I would imagine that was pretty scary for him as a 22-year-old who had hired a bunch of, you know, a 20-person team that was all jazzed about consumer. But I, I describe it as, you know, he burned the boats. Like he went all in an enterprise and he basically, he's one, he's one of the best and most prolific readers I've ever met. And he just made himself a student of the enterprise over the next three or four years. And now he's thought of, I think, as one of the real thought leaders in the space. I mean, he's like a sought after person of Fortune 500 CIOs to get his his take on where the industry's going. You know, he he did that by force of will. Like he didn't, you know, he didn't have a 20 year career in enterprise IT. He just, you know, he, he, he was both open-minded enough to, to say that, Hey, maybe that's where the, the, the white space is and then driven enough to go after and do it. I believe very firmly, by the way, that uh, anyone can learn anything given actually a remarkably short amount of time. I think if, if your average founder took two or three months and said, I'm going to get super smart on the pharmaceutical industry, you could absolutely do it in two or three months. I mean, it's certainly 90% of the way there. But people get people get ingrained in their patterns and in their comfort zones really quickly. And for people who are listening to this and say, "Oh, I actually do want to get spend two or three months and get smart on," is it? Is it? Do you have any like preferred methods of learning? Is it just reading, talking to people, reading podcasts, books on tape? You know, uh, it's. I mean, the biggest uh, piece of advice I would give people is, you know, shut off all the things that are just time sucks. You know, Netflix, TV, YouTube. You know, all, all those things are just, you know, they're, they're crutches, they're, they're time wasters. And uh, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody when I've had a, a long week or a long day and I just want to like, you know, space out in front of Netflix. Uh, but like, you know, afterwards you feel like kind of almost like empty, like I didn't really do anything. I would contrast that to I listen to a great podcast or book on tape or read a great book. And I'm always like, God, I just got like four good ideas, you know? And so you just have to kind of force yourself to develop that skill. Naval Ravikant has some of the best thinking, I think, on this space. Like, um, he, I, I used to be the guy that, like, once I started a book, I would, wouldn't, I'd like force myself to finish it. And he totally disabused me of that notion. You know, so I think he has some good kind of hacks on how you do it more effectively. But, you know, I guess it's just making sure that you're not getting people, people want to typecast you as, oh, you're a marketing person or you're a salesperson or you're a pharma person or whatever it is. And I think it's nice to sort of repot yourself once in a while to, to break that. Yeah. How, how have you repot yourself? Well, that's, that's the thing I love actually about venture, which is it sort of forces me to, to repot myself. So, you know, I, as opposed to when I was, a uh, in, in product or sales, you know, I was, I was trying to move the ball forward, you know, a couple of yards every day. And it was like a long sustained effort. But like when I was running my company, I was thinking about my company and my industry, you know, a hundred percent of the time. Now I have a, a portfolio of companies that I work with. Plus I have people coming in to, to tell me about their ideas all the time. And so I get to kind of, be like a tourist of different verticals and different ideas. And then if I find it sufficiently interesting, I get to di really dive in deep. And so I love that 
kind of cognitive diversity that it, it gives me. I think it's actually probably the most fulfilling part of the job. I'm curious, Brand, perhaps could you describe one of our companies, Omniki? How you describe it, and then I'd be curious to get Josh's immediate. Yeah, of course. So Omniki is solo founder, second company, very highly technical founder who's currently working on a way to basically personalize not only landing pages, but advertising assets as well. What's interesting is I wouldn't consider it a MarTech company. I think it would be fairly easy to call it, you know, the, the next generation of maybe, you know, one of the web optimization tools, like an Optimizely. Um, but what he's really focused on is really understanding using computer vision to personalize the experience basically from first click all the way through. So it's, it's kind of an interesting one where in spending time with Ogneki and seeing like how, a, how quickly a company evolves, like pre-seed, seed stage companies. In having conversations and in spending time with a lot of the direct to consumer brands that are popping up and spending time with even like larger retailers that are in the Bay Area, like there's definitely a need for personalization. It's like, how do you do this at scale using computer vision and data that you have on each individual user? How does that land on you in terms of like, oh, you heard the idea for the first time. Like, how do you sort of evaluate what needs to be true for that idea, for that company to be interesting to you? Well, it, I mean, it ticks a lot of the the boxes and sort of the hypothesis articulated earlier. I mean, I think um, mass personalization is sort of uh, related to kind of the idea of agility, right? It's sort of, you know, how do you move more quickly? I would, you know, Optimizely is a good example. Launch Darkly with feature flagging is is very much about this. You know, I think, uh, yeah, it, I, I like the idea that it's leveraging data. And so you're, you're having a, you know, kind of feedback loop about if I show, a user this personalized page, do I get a better result than if I show them the generic page? And then you can presumably iterate on that, right, to kind of get better and better and define sort of the optimal outcome for each person. And I also think it's the kind of thing that is what humans would like to do, but is not feasible for humans to do at scale, but it's a perfect thing for a machine learning algorithm to do, you know, to sort of to, to iterate that in. And so I think, you know, the thing that I like about that uh, company, just having heard the 30 second pitch is you should be able to show results very quickly. Like I would imagine you could demonstrate ROI quite, quite quickly. And so then uh, it would be about, you know, understanding kind of what would be the potential downsides for a developer who's thinking about deploying that, like, does it introduce a lot of latency? You know, if you're, if you're going to double the page load time, that's probably going to be a non-starter. If it's going to create, you know, security issues, that's going to be kind of challenging. But I think you know, high level, that sounds really interesting. The the other potential thing I'd maybe want to drill into a little bit is, again, like not going from like, you know, I could easily imagine that company going for, you know, five or 10 million of ARR. But if you talk about getting to like hundreds of millions of revenue, you usually to get to get, you know, to get a seven figure plus deal, you usually have to be able to attack an existing line item of cost. And so I'd want to understand like, what is the when you're not just selling, you know, this is something else you should have, but this is something that allows you to retire this other bit of spend. What is that bit of spend that you're retiring? You know, it might be marketing headcount or, or product headcount, or it might be, uh, it might be a, t- a top line story of this is going to drive more conversion. So therefore I can spend less on my original CAC because I'm getting the same amount of revenue from us, but like really understanding that story, because I, I've yet to see a like greenfield $5 million software deal, for example, you know, you have to be able to go attack something. I think it sounds really interesting. Maybe as a closing segment, you've described yourself as a, as a SaaS nerd, Josh. Um, so I want to identify some other SaaS nerds and then I want to identify where perhaps if you do have a slight difference of opinion with them on something, 
broad related to related to SaaS. And you probably agree with a lot of them on, on different topics. Hopefully they're not listening. Yeah. And Brian, feel free to jump in if you have anything you want to mention as well. So one is uh, Tomas at Redpoint. Where do you see the world differently than him? Well, I'll pick on him just a little bit. So he, first of all, he's, he's a very smart guy. I love his focus on data. Um, the amount of output that he generates is incredible. He has a particularly favorite chart that he likes to plot companies on years since founding, which I think is a completely useless and vanity metric. And I've told him so many times. Um, I think it's much more relevant to look at companies like from a million to 10 million, 10 million to 50 million, you know, those kinds of metrics. Because the, you know, the, there's monkeying around with the founding year, um, a lot in those things. And, um, I think a lot of companies also kind of wander in the wilderness for a little bit as they, as they find their way. And in what context does he use that or how would he respond? Well, I'll give you an example. Yeah. So like a lot of, um, the marketing on Slack would say Slack was founded in whatever year it was, 2000. That's complete nonsense. Slack was a pivot from tiny spec, which was a game company. So, you know, why do you get to pick your founding date as being some arbitrary, date that you launch your product. It's, it's like, you know, it's like holding your kid back in kindergarten. If, and it's, it feels like it's, it, and I think people who promote those stats, like, oh, it's the fastest company to hundred million in ARR focusing on the fastest to me is like, if you told me it's the fastest company from one to a hundred, that I think is interesting. If it's from some arbitrary start date to a hundred, I don't think it's relevant because you know, who cares if it was three founders in a garage for the first two years figuring it out? Like, should they be forever dinged for those two years? It's just sort of nonsensical to me. So that's sort of a nitpicky one. I think the the best source of kind of broad content in SaaS is Jason Lemkin. I think Jason's amazing. I think he's uh, what he's done on Quora is a gift to the community. I think I don't agree with all the things he says, but I, I think he's my next person. Uh, yeah, no, I think, no, I think, I think Jason's extremely good, especially on go to market where my observation would be most founders, not all, but most are more are stronger in product than go to market. And I think I wish, you know, his content had been around when I was starting out because, you know, that, that I think is really remarkable, particularly is the stuff he's put out around like hiring salespeople and managing salespeople and kind of the mistakes people make and, you know, oh, well, I'll just hire a sales VP and then they'll sell it, you know, that kind of stuff. There's, if, if we have time at the end, there's a whole bunch of like little tactical things that he suggests that I think are right. And that I also have my own set that I try to yeah, impart please. to people. This, this is the time at the end. Like I'll give you an example. Like um, one thing I'm seeing recently at some of our companies, our companies are using things like Chorus and Gong to monitor their and voice apps and, and voice, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not, yeah. not sorry, voice apps, but, and then I'm seeing that at the board level where they're doing analysis on the text in those calls to say this feature is being mentioned on 14% of sales calls and this keyword is being mentioned on 28% of calls and it's actually driving product roadmap. And it's one of the most effective ways I've seen for rationalizing investment and also resolving conflict. You mentioned, you know, the engineering team sometimes wants to do what the engineering team wants to do. But if you can go to the head of engineering uh, or even just an engineer and say, look, 42% of sales calls are mentioning HIPAA compliance and we don't have it yet. That's a pretty compelling argument if you all want the company to grow, right? As opposed to, you know, an engineer thinking, oh, this is just some sales guy's not doing his job and he doesn't know how to sell the product we, we have. That's like one great little hack. You know, I think you, more and more of our companies are using analytics internally to, you know, to, to solve for, you know, kind of keeping everyone like Insight Squared, for example, is it, it's a portfolio company. So it's a bit of a plug for them, but I think you'd be crazy not to be using that. I mean, it, it, uh, it does all the charts that you would ever want to interface, you know, between the different departments, uh, on the go to market, between marketing and sales, you know, it'll make managing your board super easy, but like that kind of pre-built intelligence and analytics, I think is, is amazing. I guess like, you know, some other just kind of thoughts, like, uh, I, 
The biggest thing that surprises founders as they scale from, let's say, five to 20 million is the time lag that gets involved. So you're used to saying, well, I'm going to, I need to do X revenue in a month or in two months. So I'll start hiring people. When you're at like 50 million or 100 million scale, the hiring decisions you're making now have no impact on the next six months or even 12 months. They, as the deal sizes get bigger, the time lag on getting people ramped and getting, you know, all the way through it's, it, and what the, the flip side of that is a lot of people fail to plan early enough. And so I've seen a lot of companies where growth slows in ways that were entirely predictable six to nine months before, just based on their spending. So you can, you know, and you see this a lot with founders who have been very capital efficient up to a certain point. Tiago was the, Tiago still is incredibly capital efficient, but he was so capital efficient um, that I think one of the things I tried to make him even more aware of was like, you know, that's not always going to be the case. As we get into bigger deal sizes, we're going to have to make you know, longer term investments earlier. And I think he's, you know, in the process now of pivoting the business um, in that direction. And maybe just one last thing is because I, I love this. Uh, Jason uh, Lemkin very kindly calls this Stein's law, but it's a little hack I developed for the the balance sheet. So I was always stressed about running out of money when I was a founder and like, when do you raise money and how much do you spend? So what I say to founders now is two things. The first is, uh, you, you know, as a rough metric, if you have half of your ARR in the balance sheet in cash, net cash, you'll be comfortable. And if you have less than that, you're going to be scared money. You're going to be running scared. So if you're 20 million in ARR, if you don't have 10 million on the balance sheet, you're going to feel like you're at risk. If you've got more than that, you're going to feel okay. The other thing is as you start ramping, especially if you're in hyper growth, when uh, there was a, a box went 10, 25, 55, 125 in, in, in three consecutive years which is an insane growth. And we burned, as, as now everyone knows, a lot of money to get there. One of the things that gave us a lot of confidence was Dylan Smith, who's Aaron's co-founder, and I came up with this thing we call the ripcord rule. And the ripcord rule was we always knew that if we simply stopped hiring, so if we just kept expenses where they were, we would converge to cash flow positive on the cash that we had on our balance sheet. And whenever the ripcord rule came into question, we would raise more money or we would stop spending one or the other. There's a hundred things like that. And Jason's got a whole bunch of them on his blog, but like you know, this is stuff that like, it's gold if you're a founder. I mean, it's, I, I wish I knew this stuff ahead of time. And I think it's actually, it's one of the great roles that I think investors can do is, is give some of that context to entrepreneurs who are often doing it for the first time. One thing that's interesting that Josh and I have talked a lot about is um, founders who also shy away from paid marketing. Um, mm. I actually don't view paid marketing as a bad thing. And I think oftentimes when I see a pitch deck and it's like zero dollars paid marketing, I kind of almost, it's not a negative signal, but I almost wonder like, you know, how, why don't we try testing it? Like it can be very small incremental tests over time, but I think it's really helpful to understand how does this founder, how capital efficient is this founder and how well do they know their business in terms of like, will paid marketing actually work for us? And if it does work, like how do we do this in a very efficient and safe way? And is this a lever we can start to use over time? Yeah. Saying, saying that you've spent nothing on paid marketing is another way of saying, I have no idea how paid marketing is going to work for me. And there's not a single company at scale I can think of that doesn't have paid marketing. Or uh, we have a few minutes. Are there any other things you want to leave founders with who are eager to build companies in the space? One thing I'd say is, uh, I touched on it earlier, but I, I really believe pretty deeply that the risk has changed. Where when, when I was a founder 20 years ago, when companies failed, they just like hard failed. Like, because, uh, you know, we, we like you, some people would build a product, just it would never get customers because the, the lag was so long in the uh, feedback cycle. You know, if you can get your company to five or 10 million of ARR, 
assuming you're willing to, you know, cut back and kind of live within your means, you can keep that going for a long time, but that's like a trap of its own. Like, I think there are going to be a lot of companies at five, 10, 50 million of revenue, but they're, they're not really growing that fast. And maybe they're even profitable or cash flow positive. And people are going to figure out what do we do with those companies? So, you know, I, I thought it was very interesting reading uh, Joel's post from Buffer where, you know, he's sort of embraced that model. He actually bought out his investors. I think we're going to see more of that potentially, although it didn't seem like it was that great an outcome for his investors. So like there's a, there's a, a little bit of a disconnect there. You know, we're seeing private equity becoming more aggressive, but private equity is coming in and paying two, three, four times revenue, maybe six times at the outside. That's a huge, you know, uh, try telling a founder doing 20 million in ARR that their business is worth $60 million. I mean, they probably raised 50 or $60 million. So, you know, it's, uh, there's going to be a lot of companies that I worry get stuck in the middle. And I think my advice to founders would be really be open-eyed about that. And if you think that that's a risk, like the, the temptation is to say, well, we're just going to give it another quarter or give it another two quarters. And if you, if you feel like momentum is starting to slow, I would get much more forward leaning about how are we going to, you know, think about getting ahead of that issue? Because, uh, you know, the, I would think about pursuing, you know, an acquisition, for example, much more aggressively than before the bloom comes off the rose. And is it what separates the companies that have that ceiling versus the companies that don't? Is it mostly market or is it like and competitive landscape or is it is something else or and do you kind of have a good idea of what those ceilings are going to be or I think market's probably the dominant consideration um some of it I think is companies that don't that for whatever reason are unable or unwilling to develop that next go to market motion maybe the product doesn't support it maybe they don't just frankly have the patience to do it I've I think you know uh, Dropbox is the company that I think got to the highest level of scale without enterprise sales. And I, as reading their S1, it looks like they got to five or 600 million, you know, pretty much without a lot of enterprise sales. But if you look at them now at a billion, they're very heavily in enterprise sales. And I think Dropbox is really atypical in that sense. Like I would say like, that's probably the best I could think of it. It's a highly viral, highly horizontal, very easy to understand product. And most products aren't like that. So I just think it's, it's, you know, maybe being the, you know, I, I actually think more companies also may, if you, if you're, com if you are comfortable with the idea of running a company that's, let's say 20 million in top line and netting 4 million a year, nothing wrong with that, but you have to think about that from the, how are you going to build your cap table at the beginning? Like you don't want to go raise from venture investors. If that's the case, you want to make sure that your investors are also aligned with you in that. So it's, I, I just think it's going to be an inter It's an interesting consequence of it's harder to fail, but it's actually in some ways also harder to succeed. Where can um, people learn more about you online? I'm at Brianne Kimmel. And then my website is briannekimmel.com. And I'm at DFJ Josh and uh, DFJ.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 